This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I like to present reading as less an instrumental informational act, as more a constant layering of the lens through which we're seeing the world. Because just because we don't necessarily remember something in a way that we can regurgitate it, that doesn't mean that it hasn't gotten inside us and isn't part of uh, kind of the person that we're now bringing to whatever it is that we're, that we're doing or looking at. Have you noticed how it's a lot harder to sit down with a book these days and give it our sustained attention? With internet culture and hot takes popping up with algorithms and outrage culture, it's hard to know how to get back to a reading life. In this conversation, I sit down with Austin Carty. He's the author of the book, The Pastor's Bookshelf, Why Reading Matters for Ministry. And whether or not you are a pastor or even a professing Christian, listen into this thoughtful conversation. It'll help you see why reading matters and that it's more than what it produces, but it does something to us. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. During the next three months, during June, July, and August, you can expect episodes to release every other Tuesday. As the seasons change and our schedule changes, I hope it allows you to not miss an episode. So I'll see you back in two weeks. Well, I'm excited to welcome Austin Carty to the podcast today. We're talking about reading and formation and pastoral work. It'll be such a great conversation. His most recent book is called The Pastor's Bookshelf, Why Reading Matters for Ministry. So thank you for being with us, Austin. Thank you, Ashley, for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. You are so welcome. So I have I have a PhD in English, so I, I like reading. <laughs> um, and I always said, if I could get paid to read, you know, just read. I didn't have to turn it into some other product like writing books, which I do love doing, but um, that that would be ideal. So tell us well, a listen, little bit <laughs> about your own reading journey that way. Yeah, absolutely. And if you figure out how to do that, please let me know because know. I'm going to be right there with you because <laughs> I would good. love nothing more myself. Um, so I talk in the book about my reading journey, which is an interesting one, and that I love to read uh, from as far back as I can remember. And I don't know that there's anything particularly unique or interesting about that. There are many of us that love to read. But then when I was in middle school, I deviated away from, from that. Um, I had what wound up being a pretty pivotal moment in my life in middle school that was this sudden awareness uh, based off of something that happened to me in a sixth grade language arts class that 
I could derive so much more attention and there was so much more popularity in being the class clown and Mm -hmm. not doing things like reading all the Nancy Drew and Hardy boy books and not, not, you know, spending so much time caring about my grades and all these things that were kind of core to who I am as a person. And, um, I, I really kind of dropped my reading like a hot potato Mm -hmm. and for the next decade of my life, really, I didn't read a single book that wasn't a book assigned to me. And and even then I was reading the Cliff's Notes and just the bare minimum to get by. And looking back on that now, it was a real decade of just denying a core aspect of Mm -hmm. who I am. I love to learn. I'm curious. I just adore reading. And it wasn't really until my kind of early mid twenties that I found myself falling back in love with reading again. Mm -hmm. And um, the book I kind of point to as having been the one that set me back on my reading journey was Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz. It's not mm-hmm. quite as simple as that. There were other books going on and things, but that's the one that really made me fall back in love with reading again. It, um, I'd been trying to write um, for a few years prior to really beginning to be a reader again, which is a uh, an interesting um <laughs> way to do that typically it goes the other way around but um but really what i what i loved the most about that book wasn't just you know the ideas presented in it though that was a helpful book for me at that time too but it was really how many different books and writers were cited in that book and it was clear that here was somebody that had done a lot of reading that valued reading and it presented reading as a way of life but in a kind of unassuming way it was just lurking in the background and mm-hmm. um had such a great experience with that book that then went back to the person that recommended that one it recommended i read Anne lamott's traveling mercies which i did and devoured that one and then just started reading a lot of different novels and um you know that's been a long time ago at this point and haven't looked back but mm-hmm. um that's 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 a quick overview of my reading life you give a lot of hope to parents of teenage sons <laughs> that they'll come around again. It's funny Speaking you say that one, because yeah. since the pastor's bookshelf has been out, uh, that has been interestingly something I've heard from many readers uh, uh, saying, you know, this gives me hope for my sons who right now uh, don't read. And obviously from, from parents who are themselves mm-hmm. readers and really hope that that's something mm-hmm. that, that their, that their sons will will come to come to value. And so I've heard from several people that have said that, you know, yeah. it gives me hope. So I, I, didn't, I didn't intend for that with the book, but that's right, been a neat, right. a neat byproduct to be able to that give that good. kind of hope. It is yeah. good. It's lovely when your books surprise you. Um, you know, you talk about reading as formation more than just information throughout your book, which you're singing my tune. I love um, thinking through, you know, reading as a spiritual discipline. Um, how do we form Christian imagination? And often we have to go at these sorts of things sideways, right? Um, It's not something that we can, I mean, yes, you can read books about wonder and awe and Christian formation and spiritual disciplines and and learn lots of things. But how do you describe what happens to a person, pastor, leader, average person, when they're actually reading? What, Because you talk a little bit too about that even what you forget reading is important, Um, to your formation. So could you just talk a little bit about what happens for us? I think we just have to reimagine again how reading an actual book on actual paper actually is formative and worth our time because we've become weird productive machines and information kind of junkies. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, you know, there are two core theses to the book, and you've just asked a question that really speaks to the first one, which is that reading is far more formational than it is informational. Um, the second one is that if somebody ultimately, um, you know, seeds that point and, and wants to kind of move along with, with the thrust of what the book is kind of advocating for, the second one is then that we need to think of reading less as a luxury, which is what we tend to think of as mm -hmm. an actually... I say as a vocational responsibility because in many ways the book is pitched to, to pastors, but it's much broader than that. You know, so it's more just a, a kind of a responsibility for us as human beings to be enriched and grow and be broadened. So one, reading is more formational than informational. Two, reading is not just a luxury. It's not just something we do for entertainment. It's something that broadens us and enriches us and prepares mm -hmm. us for whatever it is that we are um, kind of going into as, as, as human beings. Um, and yes, I think that one of the reasons that we tend to think of reading as purely an informational act is that we are so programmed, like you touched on your question, to think of this as a transactional, utilitarian, kind of mm -hmm. instrumental thing. We, we like to know what's going to be the practical application of this output of my right. energy. So right. we, I'm going to read this book so that I then know this information so that I can then share it in this context. And that's just such a kind of limited, reduced way of thinking about reading. Obviously, reading does inform us. But other than the kind of handful of genetic lottery winners who have photographic memories and instant recall, the rest of us studies show retain about 10% of what we read. And so that can be very frustrating for readers like ourselves who read all these great books. And then a month later, it's like, no, what did I read again? Um, what was that? Yeah. I don't even remember the main character's name. That, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> that, that can become so frustrating. But one of the important things is this reframing of what reading is, because for the 10% of what we actually recall, 100% of it is forming us as we're reading. At these, mm -hmm. what James K. Smith calls reconfiguring us at subterranean levels. Mm -hmm. And so um, I like to present reading as less an instrumental informational act, as more a constant layering of the lens through which we're seeing the world. Because just because we don't necessarily remember something in a way that mm -hmm. we can regurgitate it, uh, right when we need to, that doesn't mean that it hasn't gotten inside us and isn't part of uh, kind of the person that we're now bringing to whatever it is that we're, that we're doing or looking at. Um, and so when we're reading, we are actually being formed by what we're reading. And this isn't just kind of a, a theory of mine. This has been borne out by cognitive neuroscience. You know, now we've reached this place that cognitive neuroscientists can really begin to study what's happening within the human brain while we're reading. And mm -hmm. so um, I don't get too in the weeds in the book on this, just kind of touch on it in a kind of cursory way, but it is an important thing. And I, I direct anybody that's interested in this to look particularly at the work of Marianne Wolf, who kind of is, is the leading um, academic in, in this field. But mm -hmm. um, we tend to think that the reading brain is just kind of a static thing that we just have it, but it's not true. The, the, our neural circuit, our, our, our neural networks are formed by mm -hmm. the ways we read or don't read. 
Um, and then just because we formed them in a certain way doesn't mean they then remain that way. If we're not reading at all, or if we're just kind of looking at things on the internet and then just following hyperlinks and, um, Mm -hmm. in a very real way, our brains are being rewired and the formation that happens from long form linear reading, um, cognitive neuroscience is, cognitive neuroscience is empirically proven. Um, that that corresponds with um, nerve centers that light up um, and with so with with increased uh, empathy, with an increased uh, willingness to grapple with ambiguity, um, mm-hmm. with uh, a, an increased desire to understand others' perspectives, um, and and certainly with an increased capacity for critical thinking. So all of those things are byproducts of, of reading. So there are ways we're being formed that we can't necessarily in the moment say, here's practically why this was useful. Right. But we just read uh, by faith, not by sight, so to speak, knowing that all of this is forming us and enriching us in ways that will ultimately have practical payoff in our lives. But we can't approach reading for that one specific thing. We just trust right. that this is benefiting us in a larger, grander sense. Right. You know, I just even think about my, you know, reading before the internet, right? And I would just devour books and um, even in grad school, because I had no time for the internet and it really wasn't a big deal, you know, so just the the ability to have that sustained attention to make connections across disciplines um, that would inform how I thought that I could see beyond, you know, reading lives or scholastic lives is just fascinating compared with, oh, well, I got to read you know, this quick article here and how is this going to fit into this chapter I'm writing? You know, be, our reading has become so much more utilitarian and probably a lot less creative, I think. I think you're absolutely right. You know, and, and even like, you know, think about that. You have a PhD in literature and I'm somebody who is a pastor, but who reads a whole lot myself. Yeah. But even folks like us who, who extol the value of reading, if yep. if we're not disciplined and making sure that we're not spending all our time on kind of some like popcorn reading all over the internet and kind of jumping around. Yep. If, if we're not disciplining ourselves to read some of these more long form uh, essays and, and, and longer novels and things, then you go back and try mm-hmm. to do it and it's harder, you know, if you, it is um, so that's, that's to get back to the point, you know, about, our neural circuitry and the way that our reading brains are formed, they don't just remain static. We, it's a discipline that you have to cultivate, but there are so many byproducts. I mean, because along with all of the things that I just named a minute ago, one of those is in a increasingly kind of anxious and, and distracted Mm -hmm. world, that kind Mm -hmm. of reading forms in us a kind of calm and poise and, um, Mm -hmm. And a, and, a, and a type of wisdom uh, that mm-hmm. that reading is one of the best ways to cultivate. Um, there's a great T.S. Eliot line. Let me see if I can get this right. Where he, and he's writing over a hundred years ago, where he says, "Where is the wisdom that we've lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge that we've lost in information?" You know, and one of the great points that Marianne Wolf makes in one of her books, and I quoted in, in mine, is that. Commitment to regular reading uh, helps us to take information and actually form that into knowledge, which those are not the same things, 
but then ultimately reading and reading lots of different things and situating all of that and having those things in dialogue in our brains without really knowing that they're in dialogue, that's what ultimately helps us transform that knowledge into wisdom. Um, and, and that's something that can only be done by steady, regular reading. You don't just read one good book and come away from it uh, both knowledgeable and wise. You might have some more information, and that's not a bad thing. But to turn that information into knowledge and that knowledge into wisdom requires much more sustained commitment to reading. Why do you think, I mean, it's, it's just an excuse, right? You, you talk about lots of conversations and, you know, this idea that reading is somehow a luxury. Um, you know, if you could unpack that in the attitude of a pastor or leader, uh, what's beyond that? You know, what's underneath that? You know, is it a sense that we need to feel like we have to prove our worth is it a sense of control? Like, what is the resistance to reading? It's, of course, it's easier just to say, like, oh, I wish I had time for that. I'm too busy and important. But what's underneath that hesitancy to make reading a discipline or to see it as transformation? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, and it, it is an excuse. It's a, it's a good excuse because it's, it's, a, it's a viable one and a real one. You know, and it's, again, this extends far beyond ministers or folks, you know, working in, in some sphere of, of, of ministry. I mean, it's true for anybody that's a reader, but as my book is pitched directly to pastors and ministry leaders, um, it's a notoriously busy job. And there are all kinds of things that a minister is called to in any given day. And it is also a guild that by and large, more than most, um, is full of people who profess to love to read. And I think mostly that's mm. true. I, 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 mm-hmm. I think every now and again, you'll find somebody that probably just says it, but doesn't really mean it. But my experience is that most ministers really do value reading, but then think that it is a luxury that they just can't fit into their, their, their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's about, not feeling like there's permission to do it because they don't know whether there's any way to point to some practical value of how mm-hmm. it it informs their work. And that just goes back to what we were talking about earlier about this just kind of instrumental utilitarian transactional mm-hmm. world that, that we live in and are shaped mm-hmm. by. That there's a very real anxiety that ministers feel. And, you know, my, my introduction to the book is actually called Permission to Read Freely because I know this anxiety myself. I early in my first um, senior pastorate, I found myself reading a Dostoevsky novel in my office, but I had been doing it for, you know, 30, 45 minutes when this feeling began to nag at me. Like, what if somebody sees me in here doing this? You know, like, and it's because it's this real fear that we have that, you know, we're not, we haven't been called here and we're not being paid to read. We're being paid to minister and we're being called Mm -hmm. to minister. So there's a sense, I think, that we're somehow abandoning our responsibilities on, on par with if we're just going to be out playing golf or going to get you know a right. daily massage or something. I mean, uh, that I think that's one way that pastors tend to think about um, reading, mm. and so that's why you know that second core thesis of my book. If folks kind of buy in and, and follow and agree with the formational piece that it is more formational than informational, it's like great. Well, then so but then how do I do it? It's, well, then you've got to start to reframe in your mind. This is not just a luxury. This is, 
this is something that's a responsibility of mine. It's a vocational mm-hmm. responsibility. So far mm-hmm. from being a luxury, if I do this, it is going to benefit me and make me a sharper practitioner in every sphere of my ministry. And again, that's true mm-hmm. for folks outside of uh, the ministry too. I think this is true for people who practice law, who are doctors, who are whatever, you know, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, whatever we're doing, we bring a more enriched, um, calmer, um, yes, wiser, presence. yes, not a wiser, non-anxious presence to whatever it is we're doing. But so, so far as it relates specifically to ministry, uh, a minister who reads widely will see that necessarily beginning to come out in sermons, uh, in the person he or she brings to pastoral care visits, um, vision casting, leadership. Mm-hmm. There's really no aspect of a minister's day-to-day vocational duties that aren't enriched by reading. Um, mm-hmm. And so in my book, the middle section is the only one where all of this is mapped directly onto ministry. But mm-hmm. so that it's not just kind of theoretical, I kind of use examples from my own ministry to show how these things happen. And Yes, tell us a little bit about your own reading practice. Yeah, so... Um, if people go with point one and point two and say, yep, I'm on board. I want to be a pastor reader. I want to be, you know, a person who reads more regularly. How do I do that? You know, what I say is great. Well, then start treating your calendar as your ally. And I get this from mm. Eugene Peterson, who writes, I think mm-hmm. it's in the contemplative pastor um, about how he used to bracket out time on his calendar and how he would have dates with FD, Fyodor Dostoevsky and, Um, (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and so I say, treat your calendars, your ally, bracket out an hour, carve out an hour, uh, treat that as sacrosanct and as much as possible. But then think of it not as time spent reading, but as a pastoral visit, Uh, because Mm -hmm. in the same way, we would never think of going on a flesh and blood pastoral visit as somehow an abandonment of our duties. Think then of this as a pastoral visit that's not an abandonment of your duty because just as in a regular pastoral visit where unless you're just a really, really bad and egotistical pastor, you know that when you go in to, and then such pastors do exist, I'm sorry to say, yes. but I, 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 I think that that's, that's, that's few. Um, I think most are really serious yeah. about the call. And yes. um, uh if, unless, unless, unless you just are really full of yourself, you go into a pastoral visit knowing that you're not the one there to dispense all this knowledge and great insight and somebody else is just going to receive these pearls of wisdom. <laughs> that instead, it's two people going in, you know, in conversation where both are going to be shaped and enriched by the encounter. Well, that's what happens mm-hmm. when we read. You know, we are, we are actually in dialogue with someone, even if that person has been dead for thousands of years. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I... I I, I counsel folks to make sure and always read with pencil in hand. Um, that's mm-hmm. not something to drop once we're out of formal education, even if it's a novel, especially if it's a novel. Read with pencil in hand. Have a sort of notation system. I give some examples of how to do that in the book. Mm-hmm. But then you're actually in conversation with the person that um, is is the writer of, of the book. And you are being enriched by that. You're speaking back by virtue of the way that you're kind of notating and maybe putting some marginal notes. Um, And so you come away from that in the same way that you've come away from a pastoral visit, having been enriched by dialogue with with another Mm -hmm. living being. Um, 
So that's the way that I encourage people to start that, that really kind of see what I'm presenting in the book and say, yes, I'll bite. I, I would like to try being a pastor reader. I'd like to try being a person who reads more. I say, well, try to carve out an hour in your work day um, and, and kind of consider it as a pastoral visit. Mm, I like that. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You know, you talk, too, about the importance of reading widely and reading across divides so we're not just living in echo chambers, which is feels like what the Internet kind of forces us algorithmically into. What are the kind of categories, you think, for a pastor to be reading widely um, and across, you know, time and place and genre. What does that look like? Cause that can feel overwhelming. What's a good place to start? Yeah, it really can. And one of the things that I write in the book is that I can give recommendations, but um, one of the things I think that we find as readers, uh, Alan Jacobs is really good on this as he is on just about everything. Yep. Um, and uh, the, um Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, or I think that's, yeah. the, that's the title. It's a great book. I recommend everybody check it out. But he calls it whim. You know, and, and in my book, yeah. I refer to it as the for whatever reason aspect, where books kind of find us and speak to us and are magic for us in ways that might not be the same for other people. Um, so um, I'm always slow to say, here are the books as ministers to go read because right. these will directly benefit you. I do think there's kind of a, I, I call it my... Um, it's not my philosophy of reading. It's it's really my uh, my pneumatology of reading. The way that I think the spirit is <laughs> yeah. is involved yeah. in this. Um, but I, I do think there's a, a, an important part of saying here are some some places to start and some ways to think about this. And so, from a fictional standpoint, I, I do want to foreground for folks the importance of reading fiction, because due to that practical bent we all have and that. Yeah. desire to be informed and, and have a, a use for what we read. Most folks, particularly pastors who are reading, gravitate toward nonfiction. Yeah. And I am all for celebrating that and, and, and encouraging folks to do that and as widely as possible. But short shrift then ends up being given to fiction. So in my book, I really foreground fiction yeah. for pastors in particular and for folks generally, because that speaks to us on such a deeper level we are uh, learning uh, and, and coming to understand at a level that's, that's deeper 
um, than just kind of a, a cognitive um, um, way of being able to, 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 to retain some information with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't recommend folks jump right into the Brothers Karamazov or something <laughs> uh, if they haven't been reading a lot of fiction, because then, you know, you'll do 50 pages and just be like, well, this is like concrete. I, I can't find myself getting into this um, because such a book is not really one that uh, for most folks, if they haven't been reading, they just immediately are like, wow, right. this is thrilling. Though, <laughs> right. it's, though it's one of the greatest novels ever written. And it's one of my favorite right. books. Um, I, I recommend a book like, um, I recommend a book like Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kitteridge, um, mm-hmm. or one of the Wendell Berry Port William novels, um, Kazuo Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day, I think is a mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. book. So these are, they're not long books. They, they are compelling books. They're not just purely genre fiction, though I think genre fiction is great too, but they're, they're, mm-hmm. They're books that I think encourage us to keep finding more books that are doing more than mm-hmm. just telling like a compelling story that are really saying something about life and 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 mm-hmm. uh, and creation and and human relationship and that kind of thing. Um, I think that poetry is something that we really need to spend more time reading. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think outside of a handful of people that, you know, are poets and really value poets. There aren't enough of us that are reading poetry. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it's enriching in so many ways. Um, I think reading about current affairs and politics is deeply important. Um, and I think that it's deeply important as you kind of touched on in the way you framed the question that we certainly are going to read things that accord with the way we see the world. The problem is that tends to be all we're doing. We, we right. need to seek out, thoughtful voices that um, are going to challenge uh, the way that we come at any given topic uh, or any given um, kind of political um, take on the world. Uh, so so having some sort of awareness of, of who's working in those, in those spheres that um, isn't purely ideological and what he or she is doing uh, that that's examined um, fairly even-handed, um, but also has a position. And to read folks that, that don't necessarily accord with our, our take, I think is, is a really, really mm-hmm. important thing for people in general, for pastors in particular, because, yeah. because of the way that algorithms work on us and because of how much time we all spend on the internet and social media in particular these days, we're being force-fed a whole lot of things, you know, that, yeah. that play to the way we already see the world in a way that wasn't true even 10 years ago. Uh, and so as, as leaders in any capacity, but certainly as pastors, I think there's a real ethical responsibility to um, yeah. be able to understand where different people are coming from. And mm-hmm. again, to be able to speak to things uh, with with a perspective, but also in an unanxious, uh, non-reactionary way, because mm-hmm. we live in an increasingly anxious and reactionary world a real gift that pastors can give their congregations these days is to be unanxious and evoke a sense of calm. And it's what Craig Barnes um, refers to as gravitas Mm -hmm. uh, and a couple of his books, um, uh, which, which are anything Craig Barnes does is always worth reading. (laughs) For sure. For sure. Um, How do pastors particularly get back to reading the Bible? Not simply as, 
you know, devotional or, you know, informational text to deliver into a sermon. Um, how do we bring maybe some of that same curiosity that we might have in reading a novel back to our reading of the scriptures? I think that's such a central thing for pastors to, to try to get back to because we spend so much time being taught how to unpack it, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. and exegete it and, and, and all that's vital to the work of, of, of ministry. Um, but, you know, when C.S. Lewis talks about his conversion from theism specifically to Christianity, it's so compelling to hear him talk about how Tolkien had such a central, uh, central role in that movement by telling them, Lewis, you, you have to learn to approach the Bible and, and particularly the New Testament with the same kind of wonder and appreciation that you, uh, that, that, that you approach all great myth. And, mm-hmm. um, and that was a turning point for Lewis. And it's really where that great essay myth become fact was, was born out of that's in, uh, God in the dock. Um, and, that's that that's so key i think as ministers um to really have a love for the scriptures still um and not just a a a knowledge of and professionalism with them um is is to not reduce the bible to just you know story and on par with with any other story but to also recognize that it's chock full of story and to not devalue what the power of story on us as people mm-hmm. actually is. Um, Lewis uh, elsewhere writes that, you know, the thing that's so great about story is that it bridges two different ways of knowing. He says that we have the way of knowing uh, in the kind of cognitive philosophical sense, and then we have the way of knowing that's in the experiential in the moment sense. So, he gives the example, if I recall this right, of, of pain for that point, says that when we're not in physical pain uh, or emotional pain, we can rap philosophically on pain, we can write a whole dissertation on it, uh, but we're at a distance from it. But then, mm-hmm. you know, if we then, you know, fall down the steps and, you know, break our leg or break our back, then we're in the throes of pain, but we're so in it that we can't, we're not at a distance to be able to understand what it is. Right. And he says, so that's our dilemma as human beings to either be in it, but not able to reflect upon it or reflecting upon it, but not be in it. He says that story then is the great bridge that enables mm-hmm. us to kind of combine those two things. But the, the beauty of it, the mystery of it is that is happening at a level we don't realize. So we're walking right. through things with a character so it's, it's us in many ways, but yet it's not fully us to where we are processing it in a different way. And so the, the byproduct of that is we've been formed through that experience um, to where that story yeah, is. Yeah, but we can't even articulate it, right? <laughs> and, and that, and that <laughs> exactly is the point. How, yeah. That's that, that is the yeah. point. And so um, as, as, as people reading the scriptures, then it's, it's important to realize that the scriptures do that to us too. And that that's that that's not exclusive to, to stories outside of the Bible. That while yes, we're called to to um, to, to to interpret the, the scriptures and and then there's there's work to be done um, as pastors in that regard. That just coming at it from a place of wonder 
and appreciation mm -hmm. and knowing that the story is going to shape us is every bit as important for the work of ministry and for uh, the reader of scripture as is doing kind of the interpretive work. Mm -hmm. Another thing too, you know, that's important for me to name on that, I think is that in that kind of reading uh, for, 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 for wonder and story and not just reading, you know, a, a certain passage, but actually trying to take in the whole is that we do that over and over again so that that imagery and that language uh, and, and, and illusions like those, they become embedded um, yep. to where they, they, they become part of really the lingua franca with which we speak about things in a way that we don't know. So um, Arthur Miller, uh, when, when he was a young playwright, uh, reportedly would get out the collected works of Shakespeare and just keep typing them and saying them out loud just over and over and mm -hmm. over again so that he could get Shakespeare's cadences and um, some of those mm -hmm. images and different ideas so that then when he went to write his own, that would be lurking underneath what he was writing. And so for, for, for Christians in general, for, for, for ministers in particular, something about reading scripture, you know, as a whole and doing it so regularly is that it then becomes so embedded that when we start talking on anything, it's lurking underneath everything. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, that can't good. be, um, that can't be undervalued either. Mm -hmm. So quickly, what's one of your favorite novels? Well, I mentioned the brothers Karamazov. That's, that's, that's one of my favorites. My favorite modern novel is Gilead. Um, early in the book, I talk about Gilead and how yeah. it was really pivotal for me in, in many ways. Um, all of those Marilyn Robinson novels, I absolutely adore. Um, I mentioned Kazuo Ishiguro earlier. I really, really value his, his novels. Um, Oh, gracious. I mean, I could go on forever. Um, my, so I've said, I've talked about C.S. Lewis a lot here. It's clear that he's formed me in yep. many ways. Yep. The book that made me fall in love with reading as a kid was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So yep. Um, yep. All, all of all of those Chronicles of Narnia and anything Lewis has written have, have been important to me. Um, ask me a specific genre. That, that'll, that'll help me uh, <laughs> clarify. What's your What's your favorite novel to escape with? And what's your favorite novel to feel like? You're, you're contemplating, you know, the weight of the world and it's like eating a seven course meal. So what's your favorite, like fun, frivolous drive through novel? And what's your favorite feasting novel? That's, that, that's really well put. Um, I, I still really like those early Grisham novels for just a, a, a good kind of escapist fiction. Um, yep. and there's another writer that, uh, writes kind of in the same genre, um, that, uh, is, is a friend of mine. His name's John Hart. Um, and, uh, uh, John's, I think have a little bit, they're, 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 they're just as entertaining as the Grisham novels, but there's a little bit more to be gleaned about kind of the mm. human condition, I think. And that's not to diminish the Grisham novels at all, just, right. but, yep. um, uh, but so, those those two probably uh, Grisham and, and John Hart for your first. Um, yep. Uh, so Grisham and then then John is kind of a bridge into uh, the the deep kind of grappling. Um, I, I keep going back to it, but probably the brothers Karamazov. I mean, it it mm -hmm. it's yeah. because for those who've read it, you know exactly what I mean, and those who haven't read mm -hmm. it, you know, I encourage you to pick it up to see this, but. 
there's not a page where if you are one who likes to mark a book, you're not marking something because there's something so penetrating about the human condition where it's like, yeah. yes, no, I, I, I feel that deeply. Or I, that explains to me this person that, you know, has been so difficult in my life, but I, I now that just clarifies it in such a deep way. Um, all of Dostoevsky's novels do that. Um, mm-hmm. But that one for me, and probably because it's the first big one of his that I ever did. So it's probably mm-hmm. why it's the one that I kind of always point to first. But that one, I feel like wrestles with, all of the big questions mm-hmm. and most of the classics do and certainly those big yep. russian ones you know i I've, i'm giving short shrift to tolstoy here too i love tolstoy i mean anna karenina is another of those that yep. i think you can go to for uh the same reasons war and peace i, I prefer anna karenina to war and peace um i don't think i've ever finished war and peace yeah. i was like i can't do it uh, well i had to have an accountability partner for doing that one <laughs> I, I, I read it with somebody and um it it's because so many so many bookish folks that uh, their 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 opinions on literature I value had read it and said yeah. you've got to read it, and I'm glad I did. Anna Karenina was one that you know I turned back to a lot more than I do War and Peace. Yes. Um, yeah. Those Marilyn Robinson novels, you know, mm-hmm. are are ones too that. Have you read her first? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I love Housekeeping. Um, that one's pretty. Yeah, yeah. Magical. Yeah, it it yeah. it is. True. Um, in different ways. Yeah. Um, so those those are probably my answers to to, to that question. But one of the things oh, you know that you. that I think that oh, I'd be curious whether this this resonates with you. Um, I've always said that I thought I could discern quickly who is a real reader and who is not if they start talking about books they love to read. But when I ask, well, what are you reading? And yeah. the way that they then pause and don't have an answer but the kind of anxiety where it's like oh my gosh somebody finally <laughs> asked me well, I don't remember but I don't remember all the things that I've been reading and and um right because other so you know that somebody's lying if it's a kind of deer in headlights look like oh gracious right. I don't have an answer uh, uh, right, right or yeah. if there's a very quick answer but then that's it you know like I feel like right. I've yeah. had readers it's like oh my gosh somebody finally asked me but now I don't remember all the stuff that I was reading right, right. Um, right. that to me is the mark of of, of somebody that's reading I just I did get someone asking me the other day what's on your nightstand and I was like well really what's on my nightstand is just like the you know the fast food drive through sort of novel. So what are you going to think of me? Yeah, <laughs> because right, 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 right. I have all the other the other ones on my desk. Yeah, 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 so. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh well, thank you. I think you've really given us some really thoughtful ways forward to think, just to reimagine that reading is for is formation and it changes who we are, um, and it and it can help us in so many untold ways in in how we minister and how we move about in the world. So thank you for that. Um, and you've given us a few good starting practical places too. you know, a few great books. We'll make sure, um, appear in the show notes as well as, Hey, just one hour a day, or even just start with a half an hour a day and keep your pencil in hand and treat it as a pastoral visit. I love it. That's really helpful for those of us who our brains have become a little bit you know, a little bit more pingy instead of um, able to have some more sustained attention to the written word. Well, I, I hope uh, some listeners will will be inspired to to if 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 you haven't been reading uh, as much lately to 
to give that, you know, a, a, a shot. And, mm-hmm. um, and folks who, who have been reading, hopefully some language maybe to kind of articulate why it is so meaningful beyond just something that we like, like to do. And, um, I appreciate this conversation so much. You know, I, I think that, um, it, it's my experience and, and, and I think it's true of anybody you talk to that's a regular reader that, um, that, that reading ultimately makes us, I think, more grateful people, more content mm-hmm. people, uh, more enriched. Um, and, um, and I just don't think that we can undervalue what a, what a meaningful thing it can be in our lives. Um, so thanks for the opportunity mm-hmm. to, to talk with, with you about it today. You're so welcome. So as we conclude, we'd love to hear your laundry routine. Yeah, absolutely. So I need to give my wife most of the credit here because the way that our schedules uh, are set, the breakdown of our kind of uh, household uh, chores and duties, she winds up being the one that does the laundry more than I do. So, you know, whenever she listens to this, if I just answer this as if it's, <laughs> you know, my laundry routine, then, uh, then then I certainly am not given credit where credit's due. But so we have four kids, eight, six three today and 11 months old. Um, And so there is just constant laundry in our house. So the routine is just like daily um, is, is, is the daily doing of the laundry, but then the movement of it out to the living room where it sits in two of our chairs. And then uh, at various times of the day going and folding. And then there's the process of trying to get it from the living room floor to the children's rooms into the drawers before a three-year-old or a baby will go over and completely undo all of the folding. And so for us, the answer to the routine is it's not a found thing. It's a daily cycle that is (laughs) at all times ongoing throughout the day. There's seldom if ever a time that it's completely done and there's not yeah. laundry to be moved from the laundry room to the living room to the bedroom so 24 mm-hmm. hours a day seven days a week laundry is a thing <laughs> in our house just kind of like a re- your reading life that, right? that's exactly right so hopefully we're being formed by our laundry in ways that we don't know uh i can't really right. articulate what that is right now maybe in our sense of patience um but yeah um, yes but yeah that's that's the laundry routine in our house well the reading can help you be more you know less anxious in the process yeah that's right when that's it, right and maybe some of that, grat- that gratitude i'm saying maybe uh maybe if i read a little bit more we can become more grateful for the there the you frustrations go. <laughs> of, of constant laundry. Yes. Well, thank you, Austin. It's been a pleasure to chat with you today. What a joy, Ashley. Thanks so much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I sure did. And I could have geeked out with Austin all day long about best books and what you loved about particular books. And I love that even in his book, The Pastor's Bookshelf, he helps us even figure out a system, which is my next step for my reading life. And I always love to leave you, my listener, with one small step. So I would encourage you this week to treat your calendar, like Austin says, as an ally. Mark off reading time. It matters. In the same way that we read scripture or that we read things to become informed because we know that that in the aggregate will affect the people that we are. Reading fiction and reading all types of things, but let's just start with a good novel, will actually change and transform us to be less anxious, 
more wise people with gravitas, like Austin says. So block it off in your calendar. And would you do me the favor right now, hop on over to social media and we're going to use it for good. Tag me at AA Hales on Twitter or Instagram and tell me what you're reading. Let's have a conversation. Thanks for being here, friends. I so appreciate it. Remember, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.